Ave and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a podcast series looking at the rulers of the ancient Roman Empire. I'm your host Matt Smith and with me as always, Dr. Rhiannon Evans, lecturer in Ancient Mediterranean Studies at La Trobe University. This is episode III, Caesar and Gaul. When we last left Caesar, he'd entered the political sphere, he was made the governor of one of the northern provinces, and he was starting to turn an eye to the territories out west. Now we know quite a lot about his campaigns in Gaul, and that's mostly due to the fact that he took the time to write it all down. Here's Rhiannon Evans. Julius Caesar, he's left us with two books. They're known as, in Latin as commentari, which roughly translates as notes. We tend to call them the Gallic War and the Civil War, which in Latin is Bellum Gallicum and Bellum Coelae. But there's a lot of argument about what it's actually called because of the complexities of the manuscript tradition. And the whole lot are probably just called notes, and they're notes on particular wars. And there are books within that. Much simpler for us to call them the Gallic War and the Civil War, but we don't know exactly what they were called in antiquity. And is this our main source of information on the Gallic Wars? Absolutely. It's the only contemporary source, apart from some letters of Cicero and other bits and pieces. Others talk about it later, historians who write in Latin and Greek. The one thing that I did pick up about these books is we don't actually have copies of Caesar's books themselves or any contemporary copies of that time. Absolutely not. What do we have and how reliable is it? Well, it's pretty reliable. We have a decent manuscript tradition of Caesar's texts so that they're complete. In fact, some people would argue that the unreliable aspect of that is that other people added things in, that scribes might have decided to elaborate on some of his descriptions. Like we write marginalia, that then got incorporated. One of the things that scholars do is look at his text and think about what is not actually authentic. They try to get rid of things that they think don't fit or look like they've been added later. But on the whole, and compared to lots of other classical texts we have, we have a pretty good resource with Caesar's text. As is the case with nearly every classical text we have, the original text, as it were, or text from Caesar's time doesn't exist. There isn't too much debate about the texts of the Gallic War and the Civil War. Okay, so tell me about the texts and what was what was Caesar doing? What are these texts about? They're about the Gallic Wars, but where do they start? Where do they finish? Is it a battle report? In some ways it is. It goes year by year. So there are seven books written by Caesar and then an eighth book written by one of his generals. And all of the books written by Caesar cover one year of campaign. Book one is the year 58 BCE. And lots of people have imagined that this is what he sent back to the Senate, or something analogous is what he sent back to the Senate as his report of what he was doing in Gaul. But he doesn't actually start out with, this is me, I'm off to Gaul to conquer it. He doesn't even start out with himself. He starts out with a map of Gaul, because he basically maps out what he eventually conquers. Okay, so so book one, he puts a map there. He goes this is where I'm going to go. How did he define Gaul? What did he define as Gaul? Because we think of Gaul as France, but it was bigger than France. Absolutely. What did he define as Gaul? And is that the definition that we go by for history? Well, I would say this is another area where basically Caesar's won in that before Caesar went to Gaul for the Romans, Gaul meant a couple of things. It meant stuff to the north of Italy, 
But it actually meant stuff that we now think of as in Italy, because there's an area called Kisalpine Gaul, which means Gaul this side of the Alps. Now, we think of everything south of the Alps and part of the Alps as Italy now, but the Romans didn't. Northern Italy was originally a little bit outside to them and possibly even barbarian. It was occupied by Gauls. It was not technically part of Italy. It wasn't something incorporated until Caesar did that in 48 BCE. And so they thought of northern Italy as a little bit sub-civilized, which is quite different to the way Italy thinks of itself now, where the northerners think that they're much more sophisticated. But that was not the case in antiquity. So Gaul is northern Italy, and then the other side of the Gaul, Transalpine Gaul, really means to them a part of France that we now call Provence, which was the earliest Roman province, and that's where the name Provence comes from, and they just called it the province. It was the province of Transalpine Gaul. But Caesar actually defines Gaul as something completely different, which is all of Gaul beyond there, and that is everything west of the Rhine, which incorporates what we would now think of as France, bits of Belgium, bits of Germany, bits of the Netherlands. So quite a big territory in the northwest of Europe. And that is the way that we tend to use Gaul now, perhaps also with Provence in there. But he redefines Gaul, and almost instantly people start referring to it in that way. That's the way Cicero refers to Gaul in his letters. It's something that Caesar seems to create, and he's, it's almost like he invents the geography of Northwest Europe. Caesar maps out what he's going to conquer. What are the margins of the territory then that he's defined as this? Where, where does he intend to go? The boundaries that he lays out are actually what become provinces because it's divided up of Gaul. But he gives us a, a definition of it. And this actually has an impact on the way we think of the Gallic Wars as being written, because some people think it was written year by year and sent in, as I say, perhaps to the Senate. Some people think he got to the end and just wrote it all together. And there are scholarly arguments about whether the style changes, therefore it was probably written year by year. But I think possibly one of the arguments that it was all written together is at the beginning he lays out this territory which he can't really say is conquered, certainly not for two or three years, and arguably it's right at the end that he's pacified this space. So it's as if he told us at the beginning what he's going to do. This will be Gaul. So what did Caesar's writings tell us about the Gallic War and the Gallic people? Well, in some ways it's very partial. Along the way he tells us bits of information in relation to the way the Gauls fight against him. And you have to understand, that actually, he's not fighting all of Gaul at once. It tends to be particular areas, particular peoples, particular tribal groups who rise up at any particular time. Sometimes they've been allied with him before and they break that treaty. And that's one of the things he tells us about the Gauls. And this actually fits into a previous Roman stereotype. They're unreliable. They might flip the other way at any particular point. They can't unify at various periods, especially in 52 BCE, which is book seven of his work, they try to form this big kind of alliance to stand up, one last stand really against Caesar under the great demagogue uh, Vercingetorix. But it all falls apart. They don't trust each other. They never really stand behind Vercingetorix. They think that he's got ambitions to be a king. And so it's the lack of Gallic unity that plays against them and plays into Caesar's hands, of course, because he can divide and conquer. So is this our most complete picture of what the Gallic people were like? Yes, it is. Partly because Caesar 
for reasons that we're not entirely clear about, suddenly in book six says, at this point, I'm going to tell you all about the Gauls and Germans. And for about half of the book, almost, he goes into what we would regard as a formal ethnography. And he says, the Gauls have this form of government. They're very status conscious. They're really addicted to religion, he tells us. And this is when he tells us about the Druids. And this is our earliest account of the Druids and really one of the very few from antiquity. So when people dress up in robes and go to Stonehenge, they're sort of basing all of that on Caesar and extrapolating from it a great deal. And what he tells us about the Druids is that they're very, very learned. They have to train for an awfully long time and they have to keep all of the learning in their heads because the Gauls won't write down this sacred text, even though they can write. So he doesn't give us a negative view of the Gauls in all aspects by any means. And he seems to have a lot of respect for this learning. On the other hand, their religion also involves human sacrifice, which even though the Romans said that they themselves had practiced it on occasion, usually in very extreme circumstances, it wouldn't have seemed like a civilized activity and a normal religious ritual to the Romans. So he is differentiating them in that way. What sort of picture did he give, if any at all, about the diversity amongst the Gallic people? Were the, say, Gallic people in France the same as those, say, from the Germanic tribes? Well, he actually sees the, the Germanic peoples as a separate people. Now, archaeological evidence doesn't seem to indicate there was a great deal of cultural difference either side of the Rhine, but Caesar says there was. And he marks them out as very different. And this is one way that he talks about the Gauls as being culturally superior to the Germans. Or we shouldn't really call them the Germans, the Germani in his terms. The Germani don't have much agriculture. They seem to be semi-nomadic. They don't have gods, or they do, but they're just the sun. They're not like Roman or Gallic gods. They don't really seem to have organized religion. So he makes them look very different and, and in our language, sub-civilized, really. But within the Gauls, he does differentiate too. And part of that differentiation is based on how close they are to the Germani, and spatially, or how close they are to the Roman province. The ones in what we would call modern Belgium, he calls them the Belgae, they have had more contact with the Germani, they've fought against them, so they're tougher and less civilized. And the ones closer to the province, they've had more contact with trade and wine, and they've sort of become more civilized, but also a bit softer, more accustomed to rule, an easier conquest in some ways. So there is a difference within the Gauls. I mean, famously at the beginning of the work, in this map that he draws, he says all of Gaul is divided into three parts. And those three parts, in some ways, he doesn't really talk about the rest of the work, except to say the Belgae are tougher. And then there's a big part in the center, which are confusingly the Galli, the Gauls, and then there's the Aquitani, who don't get that much attention there in the southwest corner. So he does differentiate, but largely along these cultural lines and largely based on their proximity to the Roman province or to the Germani. You said that a large <coughs> part of the ethnography came in book six. Mm -hmm. Is there evidence that his view changed through the books on how he perceived the Gallic people to be? There is, but I think you have to infer it. He talks about the Germani a lot, actually, as barbarians. He uses the Latin word barbarous a lot for them. He uses it occasionally for the Gauls as well. But in Book 7, he never uses it. It's as if they've become more civilized by Book 7. It could be a coincidence. He just doesn't happen to use the word there. But I, 
I think that is actually a message that they're sliding under Roman rule and therefore becoming more civilized. I don't know if his view changes, though. Maybe it, you could infer that the Gauls change rather than his view changes. There mm. are people to be conquered throughout. What does his book say about his fighting and his war? How much of it was propaganda? It's all propaganda. It builds up Caesar as an entirely admirable commander. Quite often, there'll be occasions when the Roman army's in trouble because Caesar's somewhere else. And when Caesar turns up, almost just the sight of him inspires his troops and they will win that battle. But he also commends the Roman army, the Roman soldiers, as superior to the Gauls. They're superior in bravery. They will stand fast. They're unified, which the Gauls often aren't. They have superior technology, so they can build bridges really quickly. He builds a lot of bridges, including two over the Rhine. And, you know, he doesn't actually claim all the credit for that. He does say, especially when they build the second one, the fact that they were experienced and they were really enthusiastic. They really got to it. We did it really quickly. So he commends his soldiers a lot because they are the ideal Romans. And their technology is superior to that of the Gauls. The Gauls are constantly amazed at the appearance of this fort or this tower or this bridge. And they're also amazed by the speed of the Romans, lots of forced marches. Being a soldier under Caesar must have been hell. It gives us this overall impression of this military machine that's hard to defeat, but it has to be led by Caesar. So where did Britain come in? Are they part of what Caesar saw as Gallic? And what sort of challenge did it present them being, as he said, across the ocean? An enormous challenge, and he didn't really need to go there. It's very much a symbolic move to have conquered ocean as much as going to Britain. He campaigns in Britain twice, in 55 and 54 BCE, but it's more the getting there that is the victory, I would argue. Indeed, most people think what he did the first time around is you would regard it as a failure if it were anyone but Caesar presenting it. The second time around, he sort of, you know, makes an alliance with a client king and there's, there's a little bit of networking, if you like, going on. But as I say, it's conquering ocean that's very, very important. He gives us a short ethnography of the Britons. They're not Gallic in his view, but they're much more closely related to the Gauls than the Germani are, oh, even okay. though they're across a, a much bigger, more treacherous body of water. Indeed, he says, or he says he's heard, that the religious knowledge, the knowledge that the Druids have, comes from Britain, Britannia, and if the Druids need a sort of, almost like a workshop, they go over to Britannia to retrieve more of that knowledge. So that's the source of their religious ritual and knowledge. He also, though, seems to define the Britons as not as civilized as the Gauls. So again, there's a bit of a hierarchy and it's probably based on this idea he has of proximity to Southern Europe, basically. They're further away, so they don't have very organized agriculture. And this is one of the reasons he gives for not hanging around in Britain, that it's difficult to stay there because he can't get corn. He's obsessed with the corn supply. He's a practical military leader. You've got to feed your troops. And if you can't get this effectively, then you can't stay there. And it's the same in Germania. They don't have organized agriculture, so it's not easy to campaign in their territory. That's a sort of excuse for leaving early, as it were. That's Dr. Rhiannon Evans, lecturer in ancient Mediterranean studies at La Trobe University. You've been listening to Emperors of Rome. So if you like this podcast, you can find other episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. 
where you can subscribe, leave us a rating, or share it with your friends. You can follow both Rhiannon and myself on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans, and I'm at Nightlight Guy. In the next episode, we'll look at Caesar's triumph, which is a parade of victory through the streets of Rome. I'm Matt Smith, you've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.